My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Hello and welcome everybody. You're listening to It Still Lives, the Foxfire podcast where we take you on a journey through Southern Appalachian history one story at a time. I'm your host, Cami Ahrens, and this month we're taking a break from our archives and sitting down with a colleague of mine, Rachel Newcomb. Rachel works for Mainspring Conservation Trust, which is based in Macon County, North Carolina. Rachel and I realized that the missions of our organizations overlapped in many ways, and so we wanted to explore that in this conversation Um, as well as through some partnerships and programming that we'll be bringing up this summer. So Mainspring Conservation Trust, as Rachel will share with us, was originally founded as the Little Tennessee Land Trust to protect wilderness areas in the western North Carolina counties. It grew into the Mainspring Conservation Trust, which now has as one of its pillars historic and cultural preservation. And so, as we often talk about here at the museum, and perhaps it doesn't come out in the podcast as much since we select very specific subjects in the podcast, but a conversation that we have often here at the museum when we're developing interpretation or working with partners is really the integral role that the landscape plays in the culture of Southern Appalachia. This is traced all the way back to the Cherokee in our most recent Cherokee exhibition, If you come and visit the museum, you'll read through um, just a snippet of how important the landscape was to Cherokee culture and remains to this day. And that is echoed in other aspects of Appalachian culture as well. So when the European settlers moved in, you know, when you're in an isolated region such as this, you know, you have to depend on the landscape to provide every single thing. Um, just because you can't access stores the way that you can today Um, or even in more urban areas back in the 19th century. There just weren't products available. So you had to be able to rely on the landscape to provide for you and your family. And I think that rich tradition is still a part of Appalachian culture and a part of Appalachian identity. Um, Often when you talk to people who are from the mountains or have moved to the mountains, and identify as Appalachian, the first thing that they talk about is the landscape, the mountains themselves, and what the mountains mean to those people. So um, I'm really excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope that uh, in the future we'll be able to do more with Mainspring and explore, um, again, some of these areas where we overlap with their mission and um, can learn more about what they do and how their work relates to what we do. My name is Rachel Newcomb. I'm the Conservation Outreach Associate at Mainspring Conservation Trust in Franklin, North Carolina. I joined the team in July of 2020 in the middle of the pandemic, so that was an adventure, but very, very happy and thrilled to found Mainspring when I did. And I grew up in Leicester, North Carolina, which is uh, about a little bit northwest of Asheville, so I'm familiar with the region. I did my undergrad studies in... Um, upstate New York and I majored in environmental studies and public policy with the French minor. I haven't really figured out a great way to use that yet but that's something I'm really passionate about. Uh, Actually one of my colleagues at Mainspring also speaks some French so sometimes we exchange emails (laughs) which is really fun. And then I did two years of AmeriCorps 
working with food security in Knoxville and in Charleston, South Carolina before I went to pursue my master's degree in Adelaide, South Australia for two years. That's awesome. Yeah, and then I had so much fun traveling there and traveling is such a huge passion of mine um, and learning about environmental issues in a much more globalized context was really, really interesting. My classes there, I had other peers who were from all over the world really, covering every continent almost. So that was awesome, but by the end of that two years, I'd gotten really homesick and I missed my mountains and wanted to come back home. And I'm grateful I did when I did because that was right when COVID hit. Yeah, no kidding, that's awesome. Can you just describe some of your work that you do at Mainspring, what you do as a conservation outreach? Mm -hmm. Yes, I always tell everybody that I think I have the best job at Mainspring because I get to do all the fun stuff like planning events and working with our volunteers and just getting out in the community to meet people and I'm a super social, outgoing person, and especially in the middle of a pandemic, finding this position was just such a godsend because after being home alone with your cats for months on end, <laughs> it's nice to <laughs> talk to some human beings. Um, so my, my role at Mainspring is to um, help with fundraising efforts and help manage volunteers and plan different outreach events. Awesome. So what exactly is Mainspring for those of you who are listening that may not be familiar with the organization? Can you just share a little bit about the history and its mission? Yes. Mainspring Conservation Trust was formerly known as Land Trust for the Little Tennessee. And the, the story of Mainspring is really neat. So it was back in 1997 when a group of visionaries in the area really uh, started meeting for coffee on a regular basis and discussing development in the region and uh, just the, the complexities of that and different issues that were arising, um, and then realized that the, the region could really benefit from having a land trust there because there wasn't one. Um, so that's when Land Trust for the Little Tennessee was formed. And then in 2012, Land Trust for the Little Tennessee merged with the Little Tennessee Watershed Association because before it was really, they were focusing on a lot of land projects Primarily, our, the founding executive director, Paul Carlson, was a registered forester um, and brought a lot of that background into, into that role, um, as well as another member of the team, one of the original guard folks, as we say, uh, Dennis Desmond, who just retired last week after spending 19 years wow. with the organization. That's awesome. Yes. Uh, so that was a big deal. Um, and so when the, when the Watershed Association joined, that really brought in aspects of biomonitoring and Bill McClarney, who's also been, been with the organization from the very get-go um, and is with us today still, really that fit together the piece, the other piece that was missing of more of the aquatic side of conservation. And now Mainspring became Mainspring officially in 2016 when the organization decided to encompass a larger region, uh, the far west. So we cover the six westernmost counties in western North Carolina in addition to Raven County, Georgia. So before that, Land Trust for the Little Tennessee was really focused on the Little Tennessee watershed. Mm -hmm. And when in 2016, um, when it became Mainspring formally, that's when we also took on the Hawassi watershed as well. Is there something that's particularly significant about the Little Tennessee, or was it just the location where they well, were? Well, the Little Tennessee is very, very unique because it's really seen as uh, one of the most biodiverse regions, especially when considering aquatic life. 
really in the whole southeast, it's just teeming with so many different species, which is really important for conservation purposes. So I know one of the facets of Maine Springs mission is to connect with culture. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that a lot of the work that you all do in preserving land um, also helps preserve pieces of culture. Could you speak a little bit about the connection to culture? So yeah, our three pillars are land, water, cultural heritage. And it's really special. And I've, I'm really proud to be part of Mainspring because I think something that's really unique about us as a conservation trust as compared to other conservation trusts is that we do have such a direct connection with a lot of the cultural heritage in the region, that being the EBCI, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. They're such a pivotal partner for a lot of the work that we do. Um, but then also thinking about other parts of culture too, being, you know, the, the Appalachian heritage of the region is also really important to a lot of the work we do. We work with the State Historic Preservation Office to conserve older buildings that are really historic, such as the Rickman store. A lot of people are familiar with that. It's when not in a pandemic, you can come on Saturdays and listen to really amazing banjo music and dulcimers, and it's really a, a big meeting place, and that's that has been a big part of the cultural heritage of Mainspring from for a very long time. Has there been any particular experience that really stuck out in your mind or some of the work with the Cherokee that you find particularly inspiring? Yeah, it's it's really, really inspiring. I think when I'm thinking about my my short time at Mainspring thus far, one of the my favorite memories is when the Nikwasi Mound, which is right across really from our office in Franklin, um, which is amazing. We can just see it out the window from where we work. We assisted in the construction and development of a kiosk that's there that has informational signage and talking about the, the history and the, the really strong importance of the Nikwasi Mound to Cherokee people and the region. And we were there for the ceremony where that was officially unveiled and the chief came to speak and so many folks from the community came and we got to watch some of the traditional dancers uh, to do storytelling and perform dances there. That was that had a really big impact on me and really put it into a broader perspective to just how crucial the work that we're doing is. That's awesome. Yeah, I know from our experiences with the Cherokee, you know, the landscape is just inseparable from their culture, um, mm -hmm. you know, which when we speak about historically the, the removal of the Cherokee from the territory, you know, is just dreadful. I mean, the impact was ripping people from their homeland, but being able to see the Eastern Band still thrive in their original territory is pretty amazing. And I, I know you all play a really important role in protecting that space mm -hmm. for them to be able to continue that legacy for the future. Kind of piggybacking on that from a anthropological slash historical perspective, for me, it seems, you know, a no brainer that conservation and culture would be connected, but you said that very few conservation associations focus on culture. Why do you think that is? And why do you think Mainspring chose to include culture in its mission? Well, I think that it really, there wasn't even a decision there. Like there, there, there really wasn't a way to do a lot of the conservation work without taking that into account because the the reasoning and the, and the logic behind conserving different areas. There's so much, you know, we have focus areas that have been identified as areas that are climate resilient and that have more of a conservation priority to be conserved. But when that's overlaid also with different 
you know, uh, Cherokee mounds that are super important. Those seem like two different things, but but you really can't have an approach to conservation without thinking about um, the the Cherokee land and the how important it is to. Um, you know, really return a lot of that land back to their ownership when there is um, so much threat of development. But something that is interesting that I think a lot of, there's kind of a miscommunication sometimes and some people have a stereotype that because we're a conservation trust, you know, we just want to lock all the land up and not let anyone use it. And that we're very against development, which isn't true. It's there's really good areas for development to happen, mm-hmm. and there's areas that you know should be protected because of cultural or biological re- reasons for that. So we we support development. I mean, everybody needs a place to live, and everyone needs you know where everyone at Mainspring <laughs> has a home and needs to live somewhere too. Um, and we want to uh, support our the the access to the outdoors for our local community too. So that's why we have public access lands. Um, six different properties that are accessible to the public um, for folks to come hike on and um, go kayaking and just explore. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think, you know, from your, your travels and your different experiences, do you think that there's something unique about Appalachia? Well, when I got back from my travels and I kind of was getting the sense that I knew that conservation was the area I was going in professionally that direction, and I considered a lot of different land trusts, especially in the state of North Carolina, uh, to work for. And the more research I did on, on different ones, I think we're just really fortunate to be poised to be such good stewards of this region because there's, there's so much history and importance to Appalachia that just because of location that the other land trusts in our region don't have the same resources like culturally or biologically and yeah no fault of them that's just you know they they're doing their best to protect the land and that is that land is very important too um to make sure that development's happening in the correct way in the responsible way in certain areas i feel very special to, to get to work at a organization that stewards the southern blue ridge in particular because the region is is just there's so much history and biological importance that is really can't be found anywhere else. And many of what I guess I would call maybe like the old school Foxfire interviews, mm-hmm. you know, the people who um, were interviewed in like the 60s and the 70s and even the early 80s, you know, a lot of them share this like indescribable identity that's just deeply connected to the landscape. And mm-hmm. I think at least from, from my limited experiences, that, that really shapes a lot of people's interactions with the landscape still today. Do you see that in some of your stakeholders? Do you see that the locals who grew up here have kind of a different relationship or perspective to the land than maybe some of the newcomers who've moved in? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, and even though I, I grew up in the, the Southern Blue Ridge as well, and I don't have a long-standing family history in the region. It made me really apparent personally when I first when I traveled up north to pursue my education, and then overseas. How I, it wasn't until I was somewhere else that I really connected with my mountain heritage and my identity as um, a southerner in Appalachia. And I think that's also what just drew me back here. And it really it wasn't just the mountains too. It's it's the people and 
that's like the culture that I just miss so much. Um, and I didn't even really, I wasn't even aware of how enmeshed I was in that until you, you leave. I think a lot, you know, people say yeah. you don't realize what you have till it's gone. And that was definitely true for me. Absolutely. And I was like, yeah, I miss that. I need to get back. Um, but yeah, definitely when we're working with, um, so many of the landowners we work with and preserving their lands are, you know, multiple generations back. Maconians or, you know, any of the counties we work in, their families have been there for generations. Mm-hmm. And a lot of folks, you know, can, can trace their lineage back to, you know, Scottish settlers in the region. And it's, I think that that is a huge factor and the the reasoning and the, the impetus for wanting to make sure that the land continues to be conserved because um, whether it's a family farm or it's a forested area, uh, it's that, that tie back thinking about I think our, a lot of our landowners think about, you know, their relatives and ancestors of the past who who came here and for, you know, t- decided to stay here for a reason and, and want to kind of con- contribute to that legacy. How has COVID impacted your operations? I mean, with doing outreach and everything would have been mm-hmm. your tactics to still <laughs> engage with the public. Yeah, it's been interesting because, uh, yeah, so many of the, the plans I had and uh, ideas that I've had for connecting with our local community have really been put on hold because of COVID. We were definitely, we were out of the office until everybody came back last June. That was right before I started on. I've been really happy that I am able to go into an office place to work with other people and spend time (laughs) with my really awesome colleagues. uh, Because I definitely, I would have gone crazy just talking to my cats at home. Uh, I'm glad too that we're able to do that because we're following all the CDC recommended Mm -hmm. guidelines for masking and distancing and all of that. But it's actually been there. I've seen a whole lot of silver linings through doing this work as an organization. I think a lot of us have some of my colleagues with the the land protection work they're doing or um, other colleagues who are focusing more on communications or grant writing they've kind of been able to buckle down and and get some things done that they wouldn't have been able to focus on those projects if it had been kind of business as usual Mm -hmm. throughout all of last year and and continuing to be this year. Um, So that has kind of been a blessing in disguise. And then for me personally with outreach work, I've got had to get a lot more creative in my approach. And at first I kind of stayed away from all the virtual stuff because I thought, you know, everything is saturated. There's so many videos online you can go watch or you can take virtual hikes with whoever. And I was uh, feeling a little uninspired at first, but um, two uh, virtual outreach projects that have been really successful this year have been our virtual film screenings that have happened once a month and then our virtual book club, which I am the moderator for. and. Um, I started both of those things and it's actually been really cool because we have so many supporters who are spread out, not just around the Southeast, but also just around the country, folks who, you know, used to live here and live somewhere else or, um, you know, retired people who are, you know, go to Florida for the winter and usually they wouldn't be able to, you know, participate in a lot of the activities and events we have planned. So by having these Zoom events, uh, really people have been able to tune in from anywhere. And actually one of our, um, we did a screening of Hidden Rivers back in January, which was huge. We had like 250 people sign up. Wow. And there was even this uh, Italian fish biologist who was tuning in from Italy. That's awesome. Wow, this is really neat because this would not have had this far. You know, we would have been probably set up with a projector somewhere in town um, to do a film screening. And 
but, but by doing it online, it had a much bigger reach. So that's been really cool. We're hopefully having one more film screening, which um, will really put a spotlight on our um, aquatic scientist, Dr. Bill McClarney, and his work um, with uh, his nonprofit in Costa Rica as well, and having more of a globalized context um, for a lot of the biomonitoring work. So cool. that, that should be coming in the next month or so. Did you have any issues with your audience accessing the technology? Yeah, or do you have bit. a specific, yeah. like, I, I mean, I don't, just from doing a few mainspring things, it tends to be an older audience. It is. I mean, yeah, when you look at conservation nonprofits across the country, the, de- the primary demographic is, is retired folks for being supporters just because they have the time and the financial resources mm-hmm. to contribute to that. A lot, a lot of younger people um, you know, are just focusing on a whole lot of different things and might not have time. But that's a huge part of my challenge and uh, responsibility as an outreach coordinator and associate to um, really reach more of the younger demographics. So I've been brainstorming ways to do that, and I'm excited with a few ideas I have in the running. Um, but yeah, some of the the initial Zoom calls, you know, people are having trouble like unmuting themselves or not <laughs> muting themselves is more the issue. And it's like dogs barking or you're hearing conversations that are private <laughs> when they don't realize that everyone else on the call can hear them when there's yeah. like 50 plus other people on the call. That's a lot of people. Is that for your book club? Um, um, no, that oh, was one of the film screenings. We oh. have a, um, right now we have about 40 people who are book club members. Wow. And that's really that's a lot. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, what about school kids? Do you guys do, mm-hmm. have you been able to do continue education with school kids? Yeah. Um, our aquatics program manager, Jason Metter, he is also um, in charge of all of the youth education. So I, my primary role is doing outreach and education more toward an adult audience. And his role is doing that for school age kids. And he is really great at that. And uh, he's the the coworker I work the most closely with and I'm planning, we're kind of the education and outreach team at Mainspring. And last summer when I got on board, I was actually, uh, part of my orientation was helping him out with a summer snorkeling program, which we were still able to do um, with kids because, you know, we were outside being being able to be spaced out. Um, We were at the East LaPorte Park over there um, in Jackson County and I had, I didn't even know you could go freshwater snorkeling. I didn't think that was a thing. I didn't either. Um, I, I mean, I took in, in school, I, um, had a very biology heavy curriculum and yeah, I just, I had never learned that. So I've learned a lot about what's possible here in the mountains. And when you find streams that are clear enough, it's amazing what you can see when you put on a wetsuit and you get in the river. That sounds the like snorkel. a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. We were having school, uh, summer group camps uh, coming through and doing some snorkeling, which was really fun. Um, as well, one of our other great partners to do uh, that snorkeling stuff is Endless Rivers. They take out, um, they do float trips and things cool. out there um, in the Nanahala region. And yeah, it was just, it was really cool to see kids get so excited. And some kids had never had, you know, used a snorkel before yeah. and learning about macroinvertebrate health and the different fish species that are in the river at that young of an age, I think is just so crucial because something I've realized from working with youth education and really too, a lot of the cultural heritage work that we do, so much of that isn't taught in schools, mm, which yes. I think is just horrible um, because, you know, the, the powers that be that decide what's in our textbooks I think there's there's so much localized knowledge that children 
and young adults aren't privy to. There's so many things I've learned about um, just really important pieces of history yeah. since being at Mainspring. At the, the whole time I was thinking, you know, I went to school less than 100 miles away from here and I, I didn't learn any of that. Yeah, it's crazy. We see the same thing here. People come here and kids, adults, the, one of the first things they say is they don't realize that this was Cherokee land. Mm-hmm. It was just mm-hmm. crazy to me. I mean, yeah. that, that that's not taught. So it, I one absolutely of the understand. most interesting contrasts for me has been when I was living in Australia, the differences in how much further ahead they are and just their cultural heritage knowledge as a society. Most people are aware of, um, you know, which uh, tribes inhabited which lands and, you know, near where they lived and maps of the whole continent um, are all over the place with where the tribes had been. Oh, wow. There were hundreds of different um, indigenous groups there. And there, you know, p- people here have no idea. You have to go like look that up. I don't remember ever seeing that in a yeah, textbook absolutely. in school. So is it just more integrated into the school system then? Yeah, it is. And just culturally too, um, before any kind of meeting or large sporting event, they do uh, acknowledgement of country. Oh where they acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, past, present, and future, and pay respects to the elders. And it's my dream that someday here in the U.S., hopefully not too far in the future, we'll get to that point too. Um, and that's something as an organization uh, we're working on as well, just trying to do better. Um, yeah. There's such a complex relationship between, you know, really land ownership because for other, you know, for the Cherokee, it wasn't that there was people who owned land. It was kind of, mm-hmm. it belonged collectively to everyone. Um, and it's, we have that American rugged individualism issue where a lot of folks, you know, it's property rights are a big deal. And, um, but I think that there'd, there'd be so much more um, healthy streams and rivers and forests if everybody kind of had that more of a commons approach, a collective um, ideology for disrespecting the land and, um, it belonging to everybody. Based on your work and Mainspring's, um, history and hopefully their, their future mission, what do you think that the mountains are going to look like in like 50 years? Do you think that this awareness will become more common among people? Do you see it? Do you see this concern for the land growing? Yeah, well, I think something that was I was uh, thinking about a lot is land trusts, the Land Trust Alliance, which we are a member of um, because we are an accredited land trust. And this is a national organization that, you know, just kind of makes sure that all of our practices and policies are um, responsible and that we're doing everything the way we're supposed to be doing in our approach to land work. Um, they have an annual rally. It's kind of the, the conference that happens once a year when all the land trusts um, in the country can get together and share ideas about best practices and things like that. And I got to attend that virtually this fall. And one of the biggest things that I saw coming out of that was just thinking about um, diversity and connections to indigenous knowledge. And that that was really good to see because with land work and conservation and just kind of the outdoors in general, it's, it's a very relatively white space. And um, there's, there's not, historically there haven't been a lot of different voices and diverse voices mm-hmm. who've been included um, in a lot of that. So it was really neat to, to hear from different organizations that are all across the country and different land trusts and even in the Southeast region who are doing really awesome 
work to change that. And I'm excited for, for us to integrate some of those ideas too. That's great to hear. That's mm. really great to hear. Yeah. So I think awesome. it's, it's going, it, it is changing very slowly. And I think at first when I was learning about that stuff, I was like, all right, let's do it. Let's get all these, let's do everything that everybody else is doing. But I'm, I'm, I've come to realize that really to make sure we're doing everything in the best way. It does need to be kind of a slow and steady yeah. approach. Yeah, absolutely. I understand mm-hmm. that. All right, last question. Where's your favorite place to explore in Western North Carolina? Oh, gosh, that's a good question. Well, growing up, I was really connected to... I went. I would go mountain biking in the summers with my dad um, over in Bent Creek. And that there's so many good biking trails there. So for that purpose, that was really, really good. And another way, uh, skiing is my biggest recreational passion, downhill skiing. And that's one of the main reasons I went to school up north is because I joined a ski team at that at my college. Um, and so Catalucci and, and Wool Floral were very pivotal to me growing up as ski destinations here um, in our neck of the woods. And um, growing up, I also spent a lot of time in the Brevard area. Um, one of my best friends lived there and uh, spent a lot of time in, in the just the creeks and the different waterfalls that are all around Transylvania County. So it's interesting since I, I grew up um, outside of Buncombe County, right on the border of Madison County really. Um, now coming to Mainspring, we steward the six counties west of that. So I hadn't spent a lot of time in the, the outdoors um, over here in the far western part of North, Western North Carolina. And so one of the most exciting things about moving here is knowing that there's this whole new wilderness I'm gonna to get to explore. Yeah. Yeah, I, we, we're always looking for volunteers to, who wanna join us. And we have volunteering capacities in a myriad of different ways. We have folks that come in and help with some of our office work and just doing some like general admin help. Um, and then we have stewardship volunteers, which help us maintain our public access properties. Uh, with, and they're really important for a lot of the work that we do, helping with building maintenance and things like that. We also have uh, really need dedicated volunteers in the summer to assist with our biomonitoring program, which happens from May until August about. Yeah, we're going to be recruiting those soon and we'll be doing an orientation most likely for that very soon. And also anybody who's really passionate about photography or digital media, we always are seeking volunteers to help us out with that because there's always, there's never ending need for really good quality photos of the the lands that we take care of. Uh, We also have a newsletter that goes out twice a month, so we don't spam anybody (laughs) with too much stuff, but that's a really good way for folks to stay in the loop of what we do Um, that can be found on our website at mainspringconserves.org. You can sign up easily on there. We also really just appreciate any donations from anybody who's able to do so. And it's there's also a very easy link to, to do that online. And um, you can specify where you want that to go, if you want it used for a certain program or anything. Or we have a lot of folks who, who give in honor of a family member or, you know, as a birthday or holiday gifts. So, yeah, donations are always appreciated. Uh, we also have social media channels, so you can find us on Facebook, also at Mainspring Conserves, um, and on Instagram as well, Mainspring Conserves. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And we'll make sure to link all of that in the blog post on our webpage so that you guys can just hop right on over to their website and check it out. They've got all kinds of cool information about their projects. Mm-hmm. I was looking at 
all the different stuff you guys have done and it's just amazing and like you said really beautiful photography too so yeah we have a lot of um like our press releases will go online and there's always stuff coming out about um, projects that we have going on it's tough because as a conservation organization there is so much we want to share but there's we have to walk a really careful line of what we do share because um, we also don't want any properties to be overrun mm -hmm. um, because part of conserving it is, you know, keeping it in good condition um, for the, the wildlife um, and other, uh, yeah, for just habitat purposes. So we are really excited when we do get to share projects that we're working on because a lot of the work that we do just doesn't get, uh, it goes under the radar. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, great. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed meeting Rachel and we'll be back next month with another podcast. And until then, please reach out to us, share your ideas, um, send us an email at it still lives at foxfire.org. Let me know what you want to hear. We're in the throes of planning the rest of the year still and um, have plenty of opportunity to bring you lots of great content. Um, we hope that you are keeping up with this podcast and share it out with somebody or leave us a review. Those are the best ways to bring our podcast to other listeners. And we really appreciate all of your support and can't thank you enough. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next time. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>